Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the plane carrying Canadians from China has arrived in Trenton. What will Hamilton spend its $1 billion LRT money on? The Prime Minister is off to Africa. No word if he'll be wearing ceremonial clothing. And we talked to a person who died for 11 and a half minutes and then came back. Their story on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's talk coronavirus. Uh, the plane has landed with uh, the evacuees, the Canadian, uh, the Canadian citizens trying to get out of uh, China and back into Canada. They are now uh, at Trenton. Good news there. Going to play you a couple of clips here. The first one for the, from the World Health Organization. There were 31,211 confirmed cases in China and 637 deaths. For the last two days, uh, there have been fewer reported new infections in China, which is good news, but at the same time, we caution against reading too much into that. The world is facing severe disruption in the market for personal protective equipment. Demand is up to 100 times higher than normal, and prices are up to 20 times higher. This situation has been exacerbated by widespread inappropriate use of PPE outside patient care. As a result, there are now depleted stockpiles and backlogs of four uh, to six months. Global stocks of masks and respirators are now insufficient to meet the needs of WHO and our partners. All right, and then also asked in regard to what happened to Dr. Michael Ryan, this was the doctor, or sorry, uh, Dr. Michael Ryan was asked uh, in regard to the Chinese doctor who actually passed from the coronavirus after sounding the alarm and then uh, had been silenced by the police. There is an understandable confusion that occurs at the beginning of an epidemic. When you don't know your enemy, it's, it's... the fear of that enemy grows as people come to terms with that it's it's difficult so we need to be careful to label misunderstanding versus misinformation we need solidarity not only between countries but we need deep solidarity between the public and the private sector to ensure that we do not see a future in which health workers are forced to take care of patients without protective equipment that is not something any of us wish to witness all right, and as I mentioned, uh, the evacuees uh, now touch down in Trent. Let's bring in Morgan Campbell, digital video journalist with Global News, who ha- is at the site in Trenton. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So tell us what it is like there. What are conditions like for the people that have arrived? So when they arrived at about 6.30 this morning. It took a while to get that plane taxied up to the airport hangar where they, they set up this kind of impromptu processing center. That's because there was a lot of snow overnight on the runway. So the good news is is that there's nobody, uh, no one on that plane actually showing any signs of coronavirus. So they were, they're taking them off in groups of 40. 
And and what they're doing is they're bringing them into the hangar 40 at a time, and then that's when they're going to go through the various um, stages. There's three stages, and it's essentially uh, you you walk in and you speak with customs. They look at your baggage. Keep in mind that uh, these passengers were only allowed to have a carry-on. Uh, then you sit down with public health, and uh, if there were you know any symptoms, you would be escalated to another health agency. Um, and if not, then it was over to the Red Cross where, where they registered and then determined what their needs were. And then you hopped on a bus and you went across the street to another part of the base called uh, Yukon Lodge. And Yukon Lodge is essentially a hotel on base. And that's where the evacuees will be quarantined for the next 14 days. So tell us what life will be like for these people for the next 14 days. You know, not to make light of the situation, but um, these folks are essentially going to be um, in a hotel room for 14 days. They're trying to keep family units together. Um, They have access to Wi-Fi, telephones, television, um, but interaction, um, even with other passengers, is going to be limited. Actually, I can see right now as we're chatting, the next bus of 40 people are now going across, so that's that's three separate trips that they brought. Anyway, um, they've got they're they're actually processing people quite quickly, um, which is pretty remarkable under the circumstances. Right, 176 people um, to deplane is a lot. Uh, never mind having to go through all of these checks. Right. Uh, when they are detained or in these rooms for uh, for 14 days, um, you, you know, you're thinking, my goodness, cabin fever going stir crazy. Do they get out? Do they get any sort of exercise or move around at all? Yeah. So let's face it. I mean, the military, Health Canada, they're very cognizant that people need, you know, they can't kind of be locked up like that. So mm-hmm. uh, my understanding is, is that they're going to, especially the ones with young kids, um, allow kind of rotating trips outdoors in a certain area or in another area of the hotel. Um, But they are going to be monitored. They are going to be watched. And you know what? Um, Just to paint a bit of a picture here, this base now is on lockdown. You will not be able to access that portion of the base. To paint a little bit of a picture here, CFB Trenton, it's the, the hub of air movement for the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, 3,000 people work here. Um, but the thing is, it's very much a community air base. So it's not uncommon for people to kind of come and go. None of that's going to be allowed. Um, they are pulling out all the stops when it comes to security and safety here. What about the actual plane ride over? Do we know anything more about that? What was this plane like? Was it equipped in any special way, or was it just a, tra- a standard commercial airline that was that was leased? My understanding is that it was a standard commercial airline. Um, I know that the people, uh, the passengers, they did wear protective masks throughout the, the plane ride. Um, when they arrived here at CFB Trenton, those masks were they had to take them off and they were discarded and they were given new masks. Um, at this point, I, I've, I've read kind of different media reports. We actually have my colleague, Jeff Semple with Global National, who is going to be interviewing somebody um, via Skype once they get into their hotel room, who says that 
you know, they feel like they want to sleep for the next two days because it was mm. just a lot that people were on the plane sleeping. You think about it, it's, you know, about a 20-hour flight, and the layover in uh, Vancouver was was a couple hours there, right? So these people are tired, not even to take into to consideration the time difference, the stress. Yeah. They're bringing in mental health experts to, to help people out. Um, you know, it's fabulous that they're home and, and you get that sense of real cheer in this community that they're able to, to help these people. But I can't imagine, you know, at all what they must be going through and how exhausting the whole process must be. Yeah, you know, we were talking about keeping them there for 14 days. They're probably going to spend the first week just sleeping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that would be exactly what uh, what I would be doing yeah. if I were in their shoes. Uh, I want to know something that's remarkable about this story is that um, I, I, in my previous life reporting on the eastern part of the uh, the, the province, had a, had a chance to do a lot of stuff here at CFP Trenton, and I can tell you that this community is the kind of community that wears red on Fridays in support of the military. One thing's for certain, people are rallying behind the base. It, it's, it's the largest employer here, so a lot of people who live in these communities that surround the base our servicemen and women. Um, of course, you know, I'm not going to, to fluff over the fact that people are concerned, and they have valid concerns, and you know what? It, it, These it, are people it, in the town it, that are around the base. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Now, the base commander did come out yesterday and say that, you know, they're really pulling out all the stops, that, uh, that, that uh, their number one priority is not just to keep, you know, personnel safe, but the community safe as well. Um, they seem to be having some great dialogue with community members. I know the mayor's been fielding calls from people with concerns. And I was speaking with him earlier today, and he told me that the people that do have concerns, it's due to misinformation, right? And once they kind of get the information, he can kind of, bring them over onto uh, his side or there's more of a sense of understanding. But it's great to see the support here. Um, and, and let's keep in mind, these are Canadians, right? Mm. Uh, inside the inside the Welcome Center there, there's a huge sign that said, uh, Welcome Home. And, you know, nothing really would make somebody smile than, than, than to be greeted that way, right? Mm. Uh, do we know anything as far as the makeup of those on board? Like a, a lot of kids, a lot of families, uh, tourists, business people? A- any idea of, of a profile of what the average person on this plane is like? Yeah, so I know they're coming from, they're from all over the country. Um, there were approximately 34 uh uh, minors on board that uh, were accompanied by uh, Canadians holding visas. Mm-hmm. Um, but not very few details, really. Um, to paint a little bit of a picture, to kind of break it down for you, um, their privacy, clearly, you know, Health Canada is trying to protect their privacy here. And even when uh, the pl- they were deplaning, they had uh, big Government of Canada buses trying to you know, block um, block sites so that you couldn't see these people coming um, coming off the plane. So you haven't even visually seen these people going back and forth, I guess, then. Is that correct? Well, we, we were able to get some pictures of them getting off the plane, but, mm-hmm. I mean, I... Uh, You're not close to them. You and I and the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Between you and I and the fence post, they, yeah, they're, they're a ways away. Uh, the buses also are tinted, uh, tinted out windows. Um, but... I mean, it, it, 
it definitely is quite the operation with with all these different government agencies that have come together in support of this repatriation effort. So was there any problem with anybody getting on the plane, those who didn't get on the plane? And I understand that uh, at this point, those that did uh, make it to the plane, are nobody is reporting any symptoms at this point? Yeah, so it's my understanding no symptoms reported. Um and which is is great news. I know that some folks in Wuhan did not uh, were not given the opportunity to board the plane due to health reasons, but it wasn't necessarily coronavirus. Right. Um, and then there were some that didn't uh, didn't catch the plane. So the other thing was there's thirty there's thirty nine Canadians right now that uh, boarded an American airline. Um, and they stopped over earlier today in Vancouver, and they're now on their way here and really honestly should be here, I would, I would suspect, within the hour here at the, at the base. So we'll be expecting that second plane to come in. So they arrived in Vancouver uh, aboard an American plane. Are they taking now a different plane to Trenton, uh, or is it the American plane that's dropping them off in Trenton? Uh, it, I believe it's the American plane that's dropping them off in Trenton. Really? So the government of Canada is also going to charter another plane that will be heading to Wuhan um, early next week as well. Have the U.S. Have the U.S. or would the U.S. passengers have already been downloaded before they're in Vancouver and then off to Trenton? My, I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure on that one, so I don't want to speculate too right. much. Um, but that's just kind of the the information that we're that we're gathering here is that that plane, it was the American plane that was was bringing them here to CFB Trenton. So what happens after the two weeks? The doors open and everybody free to go? I think they'll probably be running out the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, all joking, all joking aside. Yeah, they're going to be monitored for two weeks. Um, they're going to be swabbed every day. You know, it's really neat, actually. Those they've got these big outdoor tents outside uh, Yukon Lodge where they're going to be testing. Uh, it's like a, it's like a bio area where they're going to be testing um, saliva and whatnot. Um, and then, yeah, it's they're going to be heading uh, back home. Keep in mind that these folks are from. You know, right across Canada. Yeah, they're from all over. So they'll have to fly out of Trenton. They'll from over. Yeah, they'll have to fly out of Trenton to their own homeland. I want or their own home province, what have you, or city. I wonder if the government is paying for that, or if the people are on their own once they once they leave Trenton. Well, I think that that is a very good question to put to the minister, and I'll let. <laughs> yeah, we should probably do that. Um, I'm not sure. I think that that's getting a little far ahead of us at this yeah. point. They just are so focused on getting these folks here off the planes and into their into their hotel rooms. The Red Cross has already already uh, has stepped up to the plate here. They provided these guys with uh, hygiene kits. They've also actually uh, you know got some teddy bears and stuff for the kids. Um, but uh, they're on site to kind of help help bridge the gap and give people, you know, whatever whatever it is that they need. I'm sure there, today is probably going to be a sigh of relief hmm. and then lots of rest. Morgan Campbell has been with us, digital video journalist with Global News, down at CFB Trenton. Uh, of course, the first plane has arrived in uh, a second, which the Americans uh, were involved in. Uh, dropping people to Vancouver will be arriving soon. Morgan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Take care. You too. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, Hamilton's council is is uh, uh, telling the government that while, while it's grateful for the billion dollars, it shouldn't be spent on anything that they were going to spend money on in the first place. And this was my major concern way back when, when everybody's going, well, we'd rather have the billion dollars. We'd rather have the billion dollars in our pocket and we'll go crazy on a shopping spree with that. We don't want the LRT. Just give us the money. And then, of course, we take the money and we spend that money on crap that the province should be paying for anyway. You know, we got to fix the roads. We got to fix the bridges. Well, that's not Hamilton's responsibility. That's the province's responsibility to do that. So now they're taking the money that they were going to spend on, it appears, on a capital project like an LRT. And then what? Use it to fill potholes? Use it to build off-ramps? That's not what the money was for, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, I, so basically we're taking the money from a capital project and we're just doing a honey-do list of stuff that should have been done by government and that's what we pay taxes for in the first place. So, I don't know. I, I'm still very cautious uh, in, um, and, 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 and suspicious of all of this. That this money won't be going to things that the government, the province, is supposed to spend anyway. You know, just because you get an LRT doesn't mean that all your bridges start falling down. Or you don't do any other maintenance. Well, you know, we gave you that LRT 20 years ago. You just work on that pothole yourself. Get all the community around. Everyone's got a shovel. You just worry about the road in front of your house there. All right, let's bring in Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer. He is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott, great to hear from you. Uh, Ryan, again, as we've talked uh, before many times, my concern, and I'm sure lots of other people's, and we're seeing this happen now, where uh, uh, the $1 billion, the task force is out there, people are trying to figure out uh, where we should be spending this money, and then we point to, you know, and again, nothing about off-ramp, nothing against off-ramps and that sort of thing, but that money is the province's, or those sorts of jobs are the province's responsibility anyway. Are you worried that this money is just going to be spent on maintenance projects that they should have done anyway? That's certainly one way that they could go if they don't want to give us a fair deal. And so far it has looked like they don't want to give us a fair deal. Another way they could go is they could introduce some other uh, transit investment, uh, which requires all of the planning and design and detailed work that's already gone into the LRT. That would just push that project uh, starting date down, you know, four or five, six years. It becomes some other government's problem way down in the future. So there's one way they could they could blow this for us is to um, spend the money on things they were already going to spend the money on, as you say. And another one is just to simply simply kick the ball so far down the road that they don't have to think about it for a long time. And he, I think those are both real dangers. Uh, here's what Mayor Fred had to say in his concerns. Notwithstanding what they might come up with, uh, you know, it ought to be uh, it ought to be Hamilton-approved uh, projects if if that's where they end up, and not uh, not giving the province a pass on their other responsibilities. Uh, and Tony Valeri, who is on the task force, uh, talking to the Bill Kelly Show. You go back to the uh, the terms of reference and they talk about substantial benefit to the residents or the economy of Hamilton, right? I mean, those are sort of the guide. That's the part of the guiding the, the guiding principles of of how the the committee is going to operate. Whatever recommendations that we would bring forward, first and foremost, would have to be of that substantial benefit to the to the Hamilton residents. So, Ryan, what are your thoughts on how the, what you've seen so far? 
Well, I mean, uh, Tony Valeri has made a really important point. This idea about a substantial benefit, this is really important. You know, you could you could easily spend a billion dollars in Hamilton filling potholes, you know, resurfacing roads. And you'd never see um, it. You'd never see what happened. It wouldn't look any different the next day. Well, exactly. I mean, we have an infrastructure backlog in the city right now because we have more infrastructure than we can afford to maintain. One of the things that LRT was going to do is attract and shape new development in such a way that we increase our tax base without having to build more miles and miles of roads and water and sewer lines and, you know, police service, fire service, all these things are expensive to maintain. The city needs to have a dense enough, uh, productive enough core to fund all of that infrastructure. If we do LRT, it actually allows us to catch up on our own infrastructure backlog. If we pour a billion dollars into filling potholes, once the money's gone, the underlying fact for $200 million a year are getting deferred because we can't afford to maintain our infrastructure, nothing changes. Uh, I remember uh, talking to Mayor Fred way back when, when this was still in its infancy stage, and it was not just about building a transportation corridor, corridor, it was about spawning development, it was about city building. Is there any sort of project that's lying in the wings that can have the kind of impact that an LRT would? I guess the obvious answer is no, uh, or the, otherwise we would have heard of it by now. Um, but but what is what can this be used for? What sort of projects are there that, again, as you said, uh, will like putting a new roof on your house after it's done, you barely even notice what you've spent all the money on. Um, what sort of projects are in the wings that can have any sort of uh, city building uh, impact? I, I'm really not aware of any, to be, to be honest with you. Uh, if, if you're looking at, at sort of transforming how the city pays for itself, you know, how uh, we attract development uh, and how we pay for things, I'm not aware of any other project just that has the sheer bang for the buck that LRT has, which is why it's been the preferred project for the last 14, 13, 14 years now. Uh, and to be honest, given the terms of reference of this task force, I would be surprised if they come back and don't say, we've looked at all the alternatives and LRT is the best way to go. Do you really think they might come back and say, yes, we're going to give you the LRT? I think it's entirely possible. I mean, yeah. the terms of service specifically mentioned that their recommendations could include LRT. So the government has acknowledged that. I think, I think some smart people in the government have realized that they absolutely botched this decision. Mm-hmm. They botched the announcement. They botched the rollout. Uh, a number of people have already been shuffled around as a result of this. There's, I have a feeling that they would love to have a face-saving way that they could come back and say, you know what, uh, we saved this project. We've heard from the people. You know, we, uh, we're a government for the people, and we're going to do the right thing. I think this task force is potentially a way for them to position themselves to do the right thing for him. Wouldn't that be fascinating if that happened? Man, I would have never predicted anything like that. Uh, once this far, you'd think that it's dead. However, if this, pro- if this project matters to Hamilton now, why wouldn't it matter to Hamilton five years from now, ten years from now? So to say it's dead, is it dead or is it postponed? The, the, the idea, as far as I'm concerned, the idea of investing in rapid transit on our, our busiest, densest, you know, and highest use transit corridor, it's inevitable. It makes sense. It's the next thing you do after your express buses are, are maxed out, which is where we are right now. The only thing to go from there is up to higher order rapid transit. So the, the reason is still there. The case is still there. The ridership is still there. The development opportunity is still there. Nothing has changed. The only thing that changed is that the government... Uh, made a reckless decision based on bogus data, you know, completely fraudulent numbers uh, in terms of these cost overruns. And, uh, you know, one thing about the billion dollars is if you look at the leaked uh, Metrolinx document, 
the Treasury Board has actually approved $3.7 billion over 30 years. That's the all-in cost for operations, maintenance, life cycle, and everything. If they come back and say, here's just a billion dollars, that's actually cutting us short compared to what, say, Mississauga has got. What about other transit options, electric buses, more buses, the blast network, all of that? Uh, how can that be spent? Is there a way to have a city building element in that other than just moving people around more efficiently, I guess? Well, I mean, electric buses, I like the idea. I think uh, they're going to become an increasingly important part of our transit network. But right now, the cost of an electric bus is one and a half times the cost of a regular bus. Yeah. And they don't perform very well in the winter. So, uh, again, electric is great. Non-polluting of the tailpipe is great. The best way to deliver that is a grid-connected electric vehicle like like LRT. Uh, What about the feds? Uh, Any chance that the federal government, I mean, I know that uh, mayors were meeting with the federal government and such, and again, looking for money specifically for transit projects and stuff. Do do you think that there's any money available there, you know, if that is needed? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Federal Infrastructure Minister McKenna has already all but, you know, kind of begged Hamilton, come and talk to us, right? Uh, they're not going to, to come out of the blue and just give this to us. They have to be approached, you know, by the by the municipality and by the provincial government. So, you know, they're not going to step in and build a system that the province doesn't support. But if the province is on board, and if it's a matter of closing, uh, you know, a difference in cost, I think the feds are definitely willing to be partners on this. Where are we with the task force now? Uh, is there any more information? Is any information coming out of the task force at this point, or is it is it pretty well mum? Well, given that the province has forced task force members to sign a non-disclosure agreement, um, you know, you know, for the people, right. for transparency and democracy, uh, not any information. <laughs> there's certainly no information coming out to me. Um, you know, I I, uh, I think you know they seem like a really decent. Uh, sort of earnest and good faith group of people that's been put together. That's been a little bit surprising in itself. Uh, you know, I'm sure they're in a very difficult position, particularly the city manager, who doesn't even know if she'll be allowed to report back to council on what she's doing on their behalf in this task force. The government has really created a mess here procedurally. When do you think we'll know more, something concrete on this? When will When will it be more than speculation? When do you think we'll actually hear something? Well, according to the government, they're hoping to have some preliminary recommendations out by the end of this month. That seems like a really aggressive timeline, uh, and certainly things have taken longer to get started uh, up to this point than they were expecting. But um, you know, I'm, I'm sure sometime within the next few months, if we don't hear anything, public pressure for some kind of answer is going to just keep building and building. I mean, Hamiltonians expect and deserve to be treated with a little bit of respect and dignity in this process. Um, you know, uh, whether you buy or don't buy uh, how we got to where we are, I'm not sure how you can come up with anything that will appease Hamiltonians on this. Um, because, again, so much work, so much effort put into LRT. Uh, then of us, all of a sudden there's chatter about, well, let's use this money for an off-ramp into Ancaster or, or, or what have you. Um, by the time we're finished with all of this, will we be just as divided as we are we were going into LRT? No project ever has 100% support. I mean, you know, you and I know this. Like it's, I mean, at the LRT plan, by all every indication we have, was supported clearly by a majority of Hamiltonians. Um, you know, 60% in a Metrolink survey, the last municipal election, the pro-LRT candidate for mayor won a commanding 54% lead across the entire city, 13 out of 15 awards. I don't think you're going to find any project that has a more universal buy-in 
than something like LRT. And a lot of the controversy has been drummed up by politicians who are kind of exploiting uh, that divisiveness in order to uh, to shore up their local support. Mm. It's quite cynical, really. Ryan, are you uh, are we naive to think that they will come back and say, you know what, I think we goofed here and we're going to go through with this? Uh, I, I prefer to think of it as optimistic. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Right. Um, you know, this government has indicated on a number of files that they tend to move very quickly. Uh, they don't think through the consequences of their decisions. Um, you know, they get a lot of blowback, and then they back down and reverse their decision. We've seen it happen with uh, funding for services for uh, children with autism. Uh, you know, we're seeing it on a few other files that they kind of recognize. Mm. Uh, I think they go into these things without really good information about how people are feeling, and they're surprised by the level of, of frustration and anger that they get when they make these bad decisions. Ryan McGregor. Sorry, go ahead. Ryan McGrill has been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer, raisethehammer.org to find out more. Ryan, thanks so much for the time as always. We'll chat again soon. Likewise. Always a pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister off to Africa to sit with the African Union. It is widely expected that he'll be trying to woo support for a Security Council seat. But can he actually help and restart, rejig relations with Africa? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. He has advised them all, and he is with, with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, good to be with you. By the way, I hope you pay that Will a lot of money. You know, he's a good man. He's very good with your guests. <laughs> you and know, he didn't put me up to that. He didn't put me up to that. We have another thing we're going to do on you one day, but not today. Not but, today. but you know, it's funny you should say that because, he, you know, well, the news was on. He hits the intercom, and he's laughing, and he goes, Tim's on the phone. So I'm thinking, what the heck are you guys talking about off air? You know? We were making fun of you. I promise <laughs> you that. Well, as long as it's nothing new. Uh, all right, before we uh, before we get to uh, the Prime Minister and Africa and such, your thought on how the whole coronavirus evacuation and such was held. Some people are being quite critical of how long this has taken, uh, while other countries have been in and out quite quickly. What are your thoughts as now these people have touched down at CFE Trent? Uh, well, I'm glad for them they're home. I'm glad for their families they're home. I'm glad uh, that, that that has all worked out, and I believe there are more Canadians on the way. I, it's, I think it's still hard to give a full critique of the government in all of this because uh, we are still learning facts uh, as to what happened or has not happened. Uh, you know, I, I guess a question that lingers is maybe one of the challenges or was a challenge because Canada is in this uh, massive diplomatic dispute with China that this slowed it down. On the other side of that, um, you know, Canada's lending aid to China and, and trying to help them deal with this health crisis. Is that a way out of the diplomatic dispute? Not to commodify those people who've just landed in Quinty, uh, but guess what? That's what happens. Is this an opportunity for Canada to ease its relations with with China? Well, I think it's an opportunity. Yes. I mean, I think there's an opportunity to say, look, we, we, we helped you out, China. Uh, you know, that's just what we do, regardless of the intense uh, divisions we currently have over Men Wangzhou and uh, and uh, the two two Michaels that are held. Uh, we put all of that aside uh, to deal with this global health crisis that uh, or health emergency, depending on on where you're sitting, I suppose. Uh, so, what do we get in return for that? I mean, maybe it's not Canadian. Trump certainly would say that. I don't know if the Prime Minister will say that. Mm. Um, can you can you uh, say the two Michaels and the coronavirus in the same sentence? Is that allowed? 
we should be because people are. Uh, uh, well, I guess my point is was that uh, the other day the uh, conservatives stood up and said, uh, you know, when I, I guess ribbing the cons- uh, the liberals that the planes had not or the plane had not taken off yet, maybe they could sweep around and pick up the two Michaels. And my God, the prime minister mm-hmm. blew a stack. Is that bad politics, or can you well, can that, you that, talk that about the two? It's probably a little bit of a stupid line, but we, we've seen the conservatives had some trouble with their their messaging. It so. is a stupid line, Tim, but I have said it several times. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, now Will, Will and I are going to tell you what we're going to do to you. No, no. Yeah, there you uh, go. Uh, but I think you and I can say it. But if you're sitting in Parliament yeah. and you're the Conservative Party and you're you know, trying to present a, a sensible a difference and build a bridge to uh, new voters, you know, that sort of stuff isn't useful. But the conversation most certainly is, is happening. Uh, we're having it now. I've heard... Was talking about this yesterday in another place, and uh, the, there's lots of linkages being made to what Canada is doing, and does that help the two Michaels? So, in regard to the plane getting out, is it Chinese restrictions or is it Canadian incompetence? We just weren't ready for something like this. It's, I, I, I don't know. It's, there seems to be an issue. The only thing that I can see that the, was sourced in the aircraft, right? Uh, may also have because Canada had to, it seemed to take some time to source a proper aircraft. I think the one that just landed in Quente um, was a cargo craft, uh, originally a cargo aircraft that got fitted uh, for a passenger carriage. So, you know, I, I where I mean, one of the things that the Paul Martin government lauded and the Stephen Harper government carried on was, you know, the the DART team. Remember that the DAS, disaster yep. assistance response team, and that team was deployed and has been deployed to earthquakes and other things. Maybe it wasn't applicable here, but maybe the mission of the teams like that need to be uh, enhanced. So I think there's. L- Definitely lots of questions to be asked. Uh, the uh, the current ambassador to China just recently saying how bad it was and how tense things were. He talked about a meeting where it was it was it was one of the worst meetings he's ever been to. People were so angry and so upset. Um, where is this going? Like this seems that until uh, the Huawei CFO is released, this will just continue, will it not? Well, that's all the front room posturing. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, Dominic Barton, the new Canadian ambassador, and you're right, he went before the parliamentary committee on Wednesday night and and, and made that and other statements. I think one of the reasons he's in there is because of his long tenure in that country um, as a business executive and uh, working through the various um, cultures that pervade in, in China to get business done. And they're very intricately linked, as I understand it, to the political culture. So, um, Cardi's pub, uh, um, sorry, Barton's public posture may be different than what is happening privately, but he's certainly setting the expectations very low, which isn't a bad thing to do. Uh, and I think that that's wise. Does that help the two Michaels? Again, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's getting a little bit ridiculous to think that these gentlemen have been incarcerated over there now, moving on to 14 months, I believe. All right, let's uh, move on to the Prime Minister's trip to Africa. What is the objective? What is the purpose of this visit? Uh, it's to kiss butt to get a U.N. seat. Scott, if you want to know, uh, the Security Council seat. So uh, Canada is in the running for, along with Ireland, and I forget the third nation, for a uh, Security Norway? Council. Norway? Was it Norway? Is that right? I believe it is, mm-hmm. yeah. The next time one comes up, which is next e- within the next year. 
Uh, I mean, the prime minister's put everybody on this file. He hired Jean Charest. He hired Joe Clark. They've been all over Africa. He's going there himself now. The Africans vote, uh, have a powerful voting block. If he can bring them on side, then maybe he wins. The question is, what's the, what are the trade-offs, right? And Canada, rightly, uh, in different eras, has been very critical of different African nat- nations for their regressive stances on same-sex marriage. And that was in the Harper years. And, and rights issues around uh, around uh, gender identity and the like. So I, I can't imagine this prime minister is going to step away from all of that. So what is he offering to get the votes? That's what I'm fascinated to know. Why, is he, uh, why does he want a seat on the U.N. Security Council so badly? Why is this so important? Well, it's a long-held belief by liberal governments that the Security Council is an important body, and arguably it is if you believe the UN is important. Uh, Harper took a different view, maybe because he couldn't win the seat on the Security Council, and that, you know, when you sit at that table, you have the Chinese, the Russians, all the world powers uh, sitting together, and that arguably you're in a position where you can shape global agendas, at least through the UN. It's a prestige thing. It's a symbol thing. You know, you'll remember in 2015, the big Trudeau brand was Canada is back. Well, to Justin Trudeau and many of his team, nothing screams Canada is back like a UN security seat. So does this help the prime minister's office or does this help the country? What is in this for Canada? Well, Justin Trudeau supporters will like it. It, You know, I I don't want to dismiss this entirely. Maybe it can help Canada. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of the UN, the the United Nations, that has a dramatic impact on Canadian law. Look at the uh, UNDRIP, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, Lots written on that recently and how that's changing Canadian legislation and specifically uh, resource project development. So... You know, if you're at the table, uh, you arguably can play a bigger role. Canada is there, but if you're at the Security Council table, you're in a tighter group with greater influence. Maybe you are able to uh, have a a better uh, manner of defining what bits and pieces of global uh, law they suggest that is is of benefit to Canada. Uh, I understand that Norway and Ireland, who are the other two uh, countries bidding for the for the same seat, have contributed more than Canada has. Will this affect us? At the end of the day, is it how much you bring to the table? Is flooding the East River with green Guinness considered more than Canada has? Wow, Canada. wouldn't that be nice? Well, well gosh, everybody <laughs> likes it. I, I like a Guinness every now and then. It's a nutritional drink. It's basically a it's supplement. Absolutely, it? yes. A, a it's, dark it's like, smoothie. That's right. It's, um, like, it's like those drinks that the seniors are having on television. It's like a yeah, sure. <laughs> insure, yeah, gives you more of a kick than insure. There, sure. Guinness just got a free ad out of us. Diageo will be happy today. Um, look, I, I think more contributions, yes, uh, can be helpful in some quarters. I think uh, Canada would argue they're a G7, G8 nation. Neither Ireland nor Norway are. Uh, the Irish, though, are, uh, as we all know, we just made some fun of them out of affection, well-regarded around the world. They they like to see themselves as bridge builders, and the Norwegians, well, they're good-looking, if nothing else. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they have a very uh, strong sense of, of social democracy and advancement. So... I don't know if do- dollars will certainly be a figure, uh, but sorry, be a figure that matters. But a lot of these things, as I understand it, are trade-offs and deals on the side. So, again, who's offering what to whom and what's really going to happen? Do Canadians want this? Is this something that resonates with Canadians? 
Uh, I don't, well, look, I'm sure there are some Canadians who most certainly want this. I think many Canadians would view the United Nations still as a credible organization. So being in its leadership body would be seen as a good thing. But is it the number one issue that keeps Canadians awake at night? Is it in the top 10 that keeps Canadians awake at night? I doubt it may be in the top 20, but, uh, you know, uh, I think economy, keeping your job, climate change, all the other things that dominate the news more regularly are more important to Canadians. But it certainly, if the Liberals are successful, they will frame it as a massive victory for Canada. Um, uh, the Prime Minister's office will say that this is also about building business ties with Africa, that uh, the nation is growing leaps and bounds, and that there's uh, lots of opportunity there. How valid is all of this, and is is Canada in position to be, to get a piece of that? Uh, look, I, I think any, I think whether they're a liberal or a conservative government, they would say that. I mean, Africa is always being described as developing and opportunities existing, particularly in the energy sector and uh, and and other resource uh, plays that are there. So, and Canadian diplomats, again, regardless of who's in power in Ottawa, help doing that. I don't know how strong an, an argument that is because it's it's one that's been in place for. 30 years, it's effectively a de facto argument. So, yeah, it has some value, but uh, but but I, I don't think it's the uh, you know the 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 overriding rationale as to why Canadians ought to support the Prime Minister's African adventures. I think people people have responded to African issues from a Canadian perspective when they have dealt with rights, uh, when they have dealt with child poverty, when they have dealt with illness. Um, and uh, illness eradication. I mean, just think of what Clintons and Gates and and others have done. Canada's been involved in that. Many many of that around disease. Much of that around disease prevention and education. I think those are more important issues for Canadians when they look at Africa. Uh, conservatives pulled back from Africa during the Harper years. Uh, obviously, that's the Prime Minister's stance on bringing Canada back to the world stage. Uh, and I understand the Conservatives pulling back because of human rights issues. Is that yep. accurate? And how does the Prime Minister square that circle? Yeah, well, that's it, right? I mean, when John Baird was Foreign Affairs Minister, he was lambasting the Commonwealth for their uh, some of the African nations in the Commonwealth, I should say, for their anti-gay um, agenda, if I can simplify it, that their anti-rights agenda. And that was a legitimate and powerful argument. So again, I don't know how the Prime Minister squares that. I don't know. I'm personally not an expert on Africa. Uh, I don't know if there have been significant improvements. I doubt there have been significant improvements. Maybe there have been some improvements. Maybe Trudeau was going to use the old Kretschmer argument when he started those Team Canada missions that you know, more of Canada in the world brings more of Canadian practices and democracy and rights. That's probably where he's going to go with it. Um, if you're not there, you can't uh, influence the way people think. Again, people, I think, split on that that argument. Uh, the prime minister, the, the prime minister, the first Canadian prime minister to attend the African Union. Uh, what's the significance of the African Union, and are there other leaders there? I believe the African Union is one of the key representative bodies in Africa. So they model themselves after the European Union and the like. So the key leaders in Africa would, many of the key leaders in Africa would be uh, at the African Union. Um, I think in the past other G7 countries have gone there when they've had uh, leaders gone there when they've had specific interests. So look, it's a... 
uh, to simplify it again, it's an ideal party to go to if you're looking to kiss butt to get some seat uh, to get some votes to win a seat. So you go to the best parties to do that, and that's where the prime minister's going. Will there be a new outfit for this from the prime minister? Do you think? <laughs> God, don't we all hope not? Probably even the prime minister himself. So I don't, uh, unless it is part of the broader dress requirements, uh, I would strongly advise the Prime Minister on behalf of Canadians not to adopt traditional dress unless others are doing it. Hmm. Uh, Is the family going? Is it just him? I have no idea. All right, Tim Powers is with us, uh, with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Hey, how's the snow situation on the rock? Oh, Liz, I was talking to Will about that. You guys in Ontario get your knickers in a twist over 10 or 20. <laughs> That's a sneeze in the morning in St. John's. They already had another had a snowstorm last week. I, I, I think my mother's decided to live in an igloo because it's the easiest thing to do right now until April comes. Out. Well, you give our best to Mom. I will. Tim Powers, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome, Scott. Have a good week. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a a, a very bizarre story. Uh, a paramedic was in London, a uh, paramedic in London, been a paramedic for 15 years, uh, doing some woodwork in his home. This was uh, a year ago. And uh, I guess it'll be two years ago now. Uh, was working uh, with an etching device in his woodworking shop and I guess was doing something that was a little cavalier as, as he said, uh, the device, the device arced, uh, into his hand and electrocuted him and his heart stopped for 11 and a half minutes. Wonder who had the stopwatch on that. Uh, he goes on to say it was like someone flipped a switch. All my senses were overwhelmed by 12,000 volt, volts of DC electricity. It was one of the most excruciatingly painful things I have ever experienced. I remember forcing thoughts. Uh, I remember forcing thoughts like, I think I'm being electrocuted. Luckily, there was a friend with him who had recently taken a high voltage safety course. Disconnected from, uh, somehow this friend disconnected uh, the device and his wife, Stephanie, started, she's a cardiac RN. Boy, does it ever pay to have somebody with medical experience in the family. Immediately started CPR. The interesting thing in all of this is they're studying what exactly does happen when someone goes through one of these near-death experiences. NDE is what it's all called. Uh, and, and universities are, are doing, are, are studying this. It is an incredible story, and to hear all about it, let's bring in Adam Tapp. He's the paramedic and in, individual who we're talking about. Adam, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. No problem. How many times have you had to tell this story? Uh, quite a few. <laughs> Unfortunately, I only have nine fingers, so it was difficult to count on my hands. But <laughs> I would probably say upwards of several hundred, to be honest with you. Uh, nine fingers, is this due to the accident? Yeah, unfortunately, while I was being electrocuted, it burned my left index finger off. Oh, man. I had a series of third-degree burns on my other hand. All right, so tell us what happened. Well, I, was, I do a lot of woodworking. I just find it kind of cathartic and a good way to relax. And I started 
this wood uh, etching technique where basically it's a microwave transformer and you take away every single possible safety precaution in it Hmm. and then let it go on wood. And it's sort of the resistance and it heats up and creates these really, really nice patterns on it. And I obviously wasn't taking the necessary safety precautions and it arced into my hand and then basically electrocuted me to death. So what happened once it started arcing? Tell us, you, you talk in this, uh, this uh, article I've read, excruciating pain. What, did you understand what was happening? Not at first. Like I, I, was, I think I was in mid-conversation with my friend Mark. Thankfully, he was standing there. And I was saying something probably irrelevant. And then all of a sudden, it was just like someone flipped a switch. And it was just this intense amount of pain and energy washing through me. And it was almost like overwhelming my senses, like I couldn't see or hear. It was just this energy. And I remember having like four thoughts. And I think at one point I was like, I don't think I'm breathing. And then, or that I was being electrocuted. And then I think I felt like I was dying or something. And then I just felt like I was falling for a prolonged period of time. And then I just died. So were these feelings while you, the device was still plugged in or after your friend had jumped in and disconnected this? Unfortunately, this if he had jumped in to try and disconnect me, he would have been lying on the ground beside me. Yeah. Executed. So how did, he, how did this happen? How did he save you? Well, he is A, clever, and B, had taken a high-voltage safety course for his work right. like, several weeks earlier, which is really convenient, considering. Wow. And he ended up sort of getting around me to where it was plugged in and unplugged it. So I have no idea the duration of time it took to unplug it, but I can't imagine more than 10 or 15 seconds, to be honest with you. So the feelings that you described, were they during the process of this actually happening or once it had uh, stopped and, and you were basically dead. Well, I think it started when I died. Like, yeah. you know, so I felt like I was falling and then I assumed that I just, I, that's the point in which I physically died. And then it was like, I just woke up from a nap in a place that I'd always been. It was, wow. it was like outer space almost. It felt like there were stars and gas clouds and it was, and I wasn't adamant. I didn't know I was dead. I didn't, it was so like disassociated from what we perceive as reality. It was just existing in a place that I had always been forever. And it was so peaceful and comforting and absence and devoid of any form of stress. And time really had no meaning at all. And I felt like I was there for an extremely long time. And then I felt this weird frequency start washing over me. And it was like gasoline on water. And it was this series of thoughts and feelings and emotions. And I felt myself just basically dissolving into everything. Wow. And and you you, you were dead, theoretically, for 11 and a half minutes. So was this what was happening during that time? Did this last for 11 minutes? Did you have any concept of time? Oh, no, not in the slightest. You know, to be honest with you, like, I didn't even know I was dead for a lack of a better perception. Mm -hmm. Like, that 11 and a half minutes, I know because I got to go over and look at the defib record because I'm a paramedic and yeah. work for that service. So I got to look actually at the defib record and the time when they hooked up, I was shocked twice. Um, obviously had no pulse. And from the time that my wife called 911, comparatively speaking, so we're able to sort of time it out to around 11 and a half minutes. So um, uh, how did they revive you? How did they, how, how did this, uh, after 11 and a half minutes, what happened? 
Well, during the 11 and a half minutes, probably in around five minutes of the last bit, they were, you know, my wife immediately started CPR, which is probably the only reason I'm being able to have a conversation with you. Hmm. And they came in and they put defib pads on me. Uh, they were both friends of mine, which is vaguely ironic. And um, there's, there's a way to get access to someone's vasculature for cardiac drugs. It's called interosseous. They basically drill a hole in your bone. And they gave me cardiac medications like epinephrine, one ten thousand, and just shocked me twice. And then the second time, they got my heart going again. And whatever place I was, I felt myself being pulled, I guess, or maybe sucked. And then I kind of have a vague notion of being back in my body. I think I remember the smell of burned flesh, which would have been my hands. And then I was in a coma for six hours. And then I remember waking up in the ICU intubated. So, so once they got you resuscitated, you don't remember any of that. That's, you don't remember until waking up in the hospital. I have no recollection of what was going on external to me from the moment I was being electrocuted to the moment I woke up in the hospital. How so, long did it take to you, for you to recover from this? Uh, oddly enough, I actually walked out of the ICU to plastics the next day, and my ribs were dislocated, and obviously I, my finger was burned mostly off and my hands were burned and then I spent some time in plastics and I was off work for around six months and then I came back to work and you know and the thing was like the study which sort of yes talk a little bit about the study and what's going on and and why they were interested in you well for for one um, the study was conducted by Andreas uh, Sodu and I will leave that to him for his discussion because I would hate to yeah. misinterpret or misrepresent something that he's doing. How did this uh, affect your life? What have you learned from this? To be honest with you, like, it was one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. And I feel like before, I don't think I knew this based on just sheer contrast. I think I was very stressed out. I was constantly stressed out. Life is inherently hard. There's yeah. good expectations. You have to accomplish this and do that. And, you know, it's, and I feel that afterwards, you know, after I kind of worked through it, like I felt very disembodied for the first couple of months. Like I was hyper aware of having to breathe and urinate and defecate. Like it was just, I, even my natural pheromonal smell, I thought was disgusting. It's something that is, I've had for my entire life. Wow. And, you know, I, I feel that now, like, you know, my wife is probably the best determining factor of this. And she says, I'm just calmer. And I just don't really care about a lot of nonsensical things. You know, we get so worked up about what I perceive now to be irrelevant things. And mm. I just generally enjoy everything so much more. What yeah. advice do you have for others who haven't been electrocuted? <laughs> don't get electrocuted? No, but but seriously, like this, you, you sound enlightened. You sound like this is, you're a different person as a result. Well, I think enlightenment is a subjective phrase, right? I I think that life is inherently hard. And I'm not recommending that people go and, you know, pull a flatliners to try and change their disposition. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, oh, they could. Well, you know, I guess it's entirely up to the individual. But what I take away from this, and the one thing that I think is irrelevant for people to understand, is that mortality is a dangerous and scary thing. It follows you around your entire life. You know what I mean? Like, I'm 37 now. And I, I've lost friends and family members, and you, you can't go far without finding someone who is dying or some variation of that. Unexpected, expected. And I think that we have a tendency to run from our mortality our entire life, which is fair because it's something that we will never understand. And the very fact that I had this experience, and I'm not suggesting there's an afterlife right. or there isn't for that matter. 
I'm just saying that my experience was deeply profound. And for those people who are having, you know, to face their own mortality or the death of a loved one, whether it's a parent, a friend, or a child, you know, if my story can even alleviate uh, a percentage of the anxiety or fear that they're experiencing, then that in itself is pretty beneficial. Unbelievable story. Adam Tapp has been with his paramedic, uh, an individual involved in the study at Western and experienced a near-death experience, or pretty much there, but came back. Adam, uh, incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, and good luck. All right, thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.